Well, it's, uh, it's been a busy day at work. We come home, we cook the dinner, uh, we help the children the homework, we get them to bed, we clear up the tea, we put the dishwasher on, and it's just time to sit down on the settee to do a bit of prayer. An hour later, you wake up. <laughs> it's 10 o'clock and it's time for bed. Or perhaps you do it at the other end of the day. You, the alarm goes off, you creep out of bed so as not to wake your husband, your wife, you sit down with your Bible and you get your prayer diary out. You read the Bible and then you remember what you've got to do that day and all the things start to crowd in. You start to worry about work and worry about the kids. It's 7.30, it's time to get everybody else up. No, no prayer, but plenty of worry. Or perhaps you've come to church one day and there's been a, a speaker uh, talking about their experiences in Africa or somewhere else and they've been telling all these amazing stories about worship services and prayer meetings that go on all night. And you go home feeling depressed and discouraged and once again feeling a complete failure in your prayer life. At times, I've experienced all of those feelings and probably some of you have too. So it's with some trepidation that we come this morning to this topic of prayer as part of our discipline series. And although we read uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, I want to concentrate on one verse uh, in that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, which is on page 1177, if you want to look it up. So chapter 6, verse 18 says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Just notice all those alls, all occasions, all kinds of prayer, always keep on praying, pray for all the saints. Does Paul live in the real world? Was he some kind of monastic, you know, locked away and praying all day? No, he was a man who frequently travelled with others, so it's difficult to get a routine, perhaps. He often stayed in other people's houses, so he couldn't just go into his study and lock the door and sit in his favourite armchair to read the Bible and pray. He had a job making tents, so maybe he had to get up early and work till late. And he spent all his spare time preaching and trying to convert the unconverted. He was out and about with the people. And yet, he can still turn around with a clear conscience and say to his friends in Ephesus, the people who knew him well, and he told them to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. So if that's the case, can we be like Paul and pray on all occasions? How can we maintain this discipline of prayer? Well, the answer, according to Paul in Ephesians verse 18, and also in Jude chapter 20 as well, is to pray in the Spirit. Now we know from the context of this passage that prayer, our lives are a spiritual battle, and uh, the uh, prayers that Natalie led refer to that. Prayer is a spiritual battle, and we need to pray, therefore, in the Spirit. But what is praying in the Spirit exactly? Now some of you might be thinking that it's praying in tongues, but I'm going to leave that subject for another sermon, and another day when perhaps we are preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where the phrase is preach, uh, praying with the Spirit. Here in Ephesians 6, we are urged to pray in the Spirit. So what does that mean exactly? According to J.I. Packer, he says, to pray in the Spirit means not to pray in our own strength or insight, 
but with the insight that God supplies through his spirit in our hearts. Now, sometimes our prayers sound very like us telling God everything that we think he ought to know about a situation. It goes a bit like this. Dear Lord, you know that our labourer is a lazy so-and-so who drinks too much and clearly doesn't take any interest in church at all. His wife suffers an awful lot, and he's a really bad example to his kids. And statistics tell us that 89% of the children of lazy parents turn out to be poor performers at school. And what's more, 10% of poor performers at school turn out to be criminals. Lord, they're breeding criminals next door. Help us, dear Lord. Now, God, I don't think, needs all that background information. Such prayers are more often a message to those listening to us than a prayer to God. So instead of using our own strength and insight in prayer, how do we find God's insights? Well, let me suggest three aspects of praying in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit is to, be, to pray as a child of God, to pray with our eyes on God, and to pray relying on the Spirit's support. So firstly, let us pray as a child of God. Have you ever been on a, an aeroplane where there's been a bit of turbulence during the flight a little bit, and everybody's a little bit nervous? And when you finally land safely, people break out into spontaneous applause at the end of the flight. Well, someone suggested that that is like a secular prayer. Who are they clapping? The aeroplane? The pilots? The cabin crew? Nobody really knows, but they want to show their appreciation. They want to give thanks and praise, if you like, for that safe flight home. It's a prayer, but who to? On Ryan, I always, I always clap at the end if I've managed to avoid spending three pounds on a tea bag and a cup of hot water. <laughs> I never find another reason to clap them. But other people knowingly pray to the Christian God. Perhaps they have memories of school assemblies or big public occasions, but they have no idea really what this God is like. It's a bit like this. Now, most of you know that I was brought up in this area. Until I was 18, I lived in Norwich. My family lived here on Unthanked Road. My father was a dentist. He had a practice in Earlham Road. And some of you might know all that. But some of you, or most of you, probably never met my father. So these people who pray to this Christian God because they know about him, but they don't know him, it's hardly an infinite, intimate form of prayer. On the other hand, some of you I know did know my father. He came to this church for a bit, a long while back. Or you may have met him at Christian events around the city. Some of you were his patients. You would have known him, some of you quite well, and you might have enjoyed a relationship with him. But Paul says here that we shouldn't stop there in our relationship with God, because there is so much more. So Paul writes in Galatians in chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there now, it's page 1170. I'm going to keep you on your toes today with the Bible. So in chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul writes this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. See, here is gospel. God sent his son, 
fully divine, the Son of God, born of a woman, fully human, born under the law of God, just like everybody else and all of us here. But having lived a perfect life without sin, he, Jesus, was able to substitute himself for us at the hour of judgment for our sins. And he paid the price so that we who are under God's law might be set free, redeemed at the price of God's own Son. And what's more, we receive the rights, the full rights of sons and children of God. You see, that's what I had with my father. When he came home from work and wanted to read the newspaper, I could prod him in the stomach until he paid me attention. I could get him to take me out sailing for a day or take me to the seaside. He would even take me to see Father Christmas at the co-op in St. Stephen's where they had this real working sleigh. Does anybody remember that? That's an intimate relationship. But there's more, because when he died a few years ago, I received an inheritance that nobody else here did, but it was my right to, because I was his son. And because Jesus has redeemed us from our rightful judgment and has given us the full rights of sons, we also receive an inheritance from his father. And what do we receive? Galatians 4 and verse 6 says, Because you are sons... God sent the Spirit of God, the Spirit of His Son, sorry, into our hearts. So just as we were promised by God through that prophet Ezekiel, who we heard about earlier on, in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, God said, I will give them an undivided heart and a new spirit in them. I will move from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. See, our inheritance as sons is none other than a new heart where the Spirit of Jesus, God's own Son, can live. And in Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, the new Spirit helps us to follow God's laws and decrees and to be a true people of God. And the Spirit of Jesus still does that for us. But here in Galatians, Paul adds another, uh, another dimension, another emphasis. He says, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. He enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, Dad, Dad. You see, that doesn't mean, just mean soppy Daddy love. Oh, Daddy, I love you. That sort of love, which some of the Christian songs like to lead us to believe. No, it means the intimate relationship of a father and their children. It means we can prod God in the stomach. It means we can get him to take us places. It means pleading with him. It means sometimes getting no answers, but somehow still trusting in him. It means exasperation, waiting. It means receiving, sometimes beyond our wildest expectations. It means having no fear of asking for the wrong thing or appearing silly, because it's all within the family. It means saying sorry when we've messed up and knowing that we're forgiven. It means that intimate moment when we're first given the paintbrush and allowed to splash paint on our bedroom walls, knowing full well that dad or mum could paint this whole room all by themselves on their own, but they're just so delighted to have us involved in the work that they're doing. Isn't that good news, that we have been redeemed by Jesus, we have received the full rights of sons, we have inherited the spirit of Jesus in our hearts, and we can call God Dad, in prayer. Well, that's one aspect of prayer in the Spirit. We can pray 
as children of God. The second aspect is this, to pray with our eyes on God. You see, there's no point in having this intimate relationship with, with our Father unless we have the security and the knowledge that our Father is indeed good. Which is why when we pray with our eyes on God, the Spirit enables us to see that God is good. Turn now to page 1145 and 1 Corinthians. I'm cheating, I have post-it notes in my Bible, so I'll read again. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says this. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Do you see? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now some of you are going to be a glasses half full sort of people. You know that good things are with you already and waiting just around the corner. Others of us are just uh, glass are half empty types. I'm definitely in that last camp by nature. But according to Paul, the Spirit takes even the most pessimistic among us and opens our eyes to see everything that God has for us. You see, God reveals it to us by his Spirit. Now, there's this uh, mythical story that is told that somebody went up to heaven and saw lots of wrapped-up gifts in the storeroom. And a man asked what they were. And the angel said, well, go go over and go and have a look. So the man went over and he looked and he saw that every parcel had a gift tag attached to it. And on every single tag, there was a name written on it. But over that name, somebody had come with a rubber stamp and stamped, not asked for. Heaven was full of gifts that had never been asked for. But you see, it's much, much more than that, I think. William Barclay, the writer of 17 commentaries on the New Testament, said, when we pray, we must remember three things. He said, one, the love of God that wants the best for us. Two, the wisdom of God that knows what's best for us. Three, the power of God that can accomplish it for us. You see, when we pray in the Spirit, he teaches us us all of these. His love, his wisdom, and his power are much stronger than we possibly realize. As you uh, drive out towards the east coast in Norfolk, you can see a number of the old wind pumps And you might well reflect on the awesome power of the wind, which is capable of driving that heavy machinery inside, which turns the pump and keeps all those fields from flooding. But then as you get closer to the sea, the more modern modern wind turbines come into view. And someone might tell you that they can produce 2,000 times more usable power than the old wind pump did. And whilst you're still taking that in, Your teacher might mention that just down the coastline at Sizewell, there's this power station capable of producing 480 times more power than the modern wind turbine can produce. And that's what the Spirit does for us as the teacher of God's people. He opens the eyes of our understanding and keeps us looking to God, focusing on him and his resources of grace and power, so that we are able to pray with complete confidence. And strangely, in a way, he does that 
by pointing us to Jesus. John 16 uh, and verse 14 says, the Spirit's job is to bring glory to Jesus. Jesus says, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The Spirit reveals the glory and power of Jesus. Why? Because without Jesus, all of God's good gifts, his love, his wisdom and his power would be, would be useless because it's Christ's sacrificial love that mediates between us and God. J.I. Packer writes, As when through clearing fog we see the beginning of an overwhelming view and are thereby made more eager to see the rest of it as the fog retreats further. So it is with the love of Christ. As more and more of its selflessness, beauty and power emerge, we find ourselves breathless, mesmerised and carried away. And so it is that the Spirit reveals Christ, the mediator between us and God. He reveals Christ to us. Now, as I've been writing this sermon, I've realised just how fearful and lacking in trust I can actually be as I pray and how little I actually ask for. And I've had to repent and be driven back to the realisation that I am God's son, that God is good, and that he has the power to provide everything that I possibly need. See, in the words of the reformer John Calvin, he said, whenever any hesitation shall hinder us, let us remember to ask him to correct our fearfulness and to set before us the spirit that he may guide us to pray boldly. So let us pray in the Spirit and dare to be bold in all our requests and petitions. He wants to bless us so much more than we actually realise. The third aspect of praying in the Spirit is this. We pray relying on the Spirit's support. Sometimes I think we are ready to pray. Um, We're ready to be bold in prayer, perhaps. But then we're still not sure what actually to pray for. It's like we're piloting a passenger aircraft. We've been through all the pre-flight safety checks. The jet engines are ticking over. The passengers have boarded. Air traffic control have given us the clear to depart. And then we think to ourselves, where shall we go? Where shall we fly to? It would be nonsensical, wouldn't it? But haven't you been there in prayer? You see, you're all fired up and ready to go, but you don't know how to pray for this difficult situation. You can't put your thoughts and desires into words. You end up tongue-tied before the Lord. But that's where praying in the Spirit helps once more. We need to turn to Romans now. Romans chapter 8. On page 1135. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints 
in accordance with God's will. See, here Paul teaches us that the Spirit is in us and he's praying for us and he knows our deepest needs. So if we don't know exactly what to ask for and we can only bring a name or a need before God in very general terms, God still hears us. This also is prayer in the Spirit. And that's, for me, is a tremendously encouraging truth, isn't it? I can say, Lord, here is this need. I wish I knew how to pray about it, but I don't yet. Thank you that you know my heart and that the Spirit is interceding for me. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just sit back and just let the Spirit get on with it. We can't just put the plane into autopilot, as it were, and let him take it, let, let, and see where we go. We can't be lazy in prayer in that way. In fact, our verse in Ephesians reminds us to be always alert in prayer. It's not about switching off. We need to have the discipline of prayer and decide what we're going to pray for. But then we should ask for the Spirit's help because we never have a prayer meeting of one. The Spirit is always alongside us, praying with us. And he will fill in the gaps and guide our prayers. And if necessary, he even tell us when to stop. There's a story about Hudson Taylor, the great uh, missionary to China. When he was 18 years old and not yet a Christian, he wandered into his father's study one day and read uh, an evangelistic tract there. And after thinking about what he read, he gave his life to Christ. And he was very excited about it. He wanted to tell his mother and his father, but his mother was away on a journey. Eventually, after several weeks, she came back home and he, he told her the good news, that he had become a Christian. And she said, Hudson, I already know. Because on that very afternoon you read that tract, I'd been praying all afternoon for you, my son, to become a Christian. And the Spirit told me that I didn't need to pray anymore. So we should pray in the Spirit at all times, with all kinds of prayers and requests. We should pray as children of God and pray with our eyes on God and pray with the support of the Spirit. But Paul reminds us also in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, he says that we should also keep on praying for all the saints. And I just want to spend the last minute on that. Prayer for all the saints. You see, prayer should be a family matter. Self-absorption is not a Christian virtue. We're not in the kingdom of God alone. We're only a part of Christ's body. Praying for all the saints just simply means praying for other believers, the other members of our family, the members of this church, the members of the church around the world. And prayer is an exciting, wonderful journey, but it's not just for us. As with all God's good gifts to us, they're given to us not only for ourselves, but that we might bless others and bless and build the church. And that, in a sense, is why I couldn't help be a bit disappointed this last Wednesday evening at the church prayer meeting when we had the opportunity to pray for all the saints. But only 14 of us took that opportunity. Paul says, always, always keep on praying for all the saints. Father God, we uh, confess to you the times when we have been weak in our prayers, when other things have taken priority or, or simply we haven't had the energy 
and the strength to sit down and pray to you. Lord, we thank you and you, that you know us in our weakness and you love us in any case. But Lord, we pray for the help of your spirit, that we may pray in the spirit, that we might know we are your children, that we might be able to have the support of your spirit as we pray. And Lord, teach us, as we prayed at the beginning, to pray all the more and put what we've heard this morning into practice. Amen.